from coast to coast to coast. You're listening to Terra Informa. You're listening. You're listening. You're listening. You're listening. As I'm writing this, a heat wave has finally broken here in central Alberta. Over the past week or so, it has definitely felt like the peak of summer. Now that it has cooled down a little bit, we finally have the energy to round up some of the environmental news headlines from the month of July. I'm Hannah Cunningham, and I'll be your host for the next half hour of environmental news, stories, and ideas. Before we begin this episode, we would like to acknowledge that this episode was produced in Treaty 6 territory in Amiskwitsiwaskaigan, Beaver Hills House, or so-called Edmonton. We are broadcasting from unrecognized Papa's Chase Cree territory. The Papa's Chase Cree were displaced following consistent efforts from local officials like Frank Oliver to discredit the legitimacy of their treaty right to this territory and to reserve number 136, now South Edmonton. Not confined to history, this region is also the present homelands of many First Peoples who build their lives here, pursue livelihoods, and gather together, including Cree, Métis, Blackfoot, and Dene. Wherever you're listening from, we ask you to consider whose version of history informs your understanding of the land you are on. This week, we are catching you up on some of the environmental news headlines that you might have missed over the past month. For our first story, we are starting in Vancouver, British Columbia, where the City Council has voted to create a fund for climate crisis litigation. Here's Sonic Patel to tell us all about it. Listeners, this is Sonic Patel discussing a motion made by the Vancouver City Council to ensure the costs of climate adaptation are passed to the firms responsible. On July 20th, the Vancouver City Council narrowly passed a resolution to support a motion to allocate up to $700,000 in funding towards a climate lawsuit. The target? Major oil companies in Canada, like ExxonMobil, owner of Imperial Oil. The proposed lawsuit describes a compelling case. Substantial evidence shows that major oil and gas companies, like ExxonMobil, were on the cutting edge of climate science, investigating the relationship between fossil fuel consumption, greenhouse gas emissions, and the climate crisis. An oil executive for the firm that would become Suncor 
was warned of the dangers of climate change in the late 1950s. A 1980s Imperial Oil internal report states that, quote, There is no doubt that increases in fossil fuel usage and decreases of forest cover are aggravating the potential problem of increased carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, end quote. Yet, despite their forewarning of the climate crisis, these firms did nothing to act to reduce or mitigate this disaster. In fact, quite the opposite. A decade after that aforementioned internal report, Imperial Oil executives were challenging the link between climate change and fossil fuel consumption. Climate science denial from oil and gas firms hasn't disappeared, but rather evolved. A study of the communications of ExxonMobil found that their climate science language has moved from outright denial to skepticism to discourses of greenwashing, technological optimism, and individual responsibility that minimizes the importance of reducing oil and gas consumption that continues to this day. Because of this campaign of disinformation, the climate action effort has been, and continues to be, weakened and delayed. And as a result, we are already experiencing the effects of a warming world and changing climate. Even if we get to net zero next week, the effects of climate change will continue, and maybe worsen due to the greenhouse gases already in the atmosphere. And this delay and lack of climate action has resulted in huge costs for the taxpayers and citizens, prompting this lawsuit. Vancouver alone is paying roughly $50 million a year to cope and prepare for climate changes, substantially more than the 700000 being allocated to this lawsuit. Vancouver's climate adaptation investments are well worth it, considering the climate change impacts that have been devastating British Columbia, from the wildfires that destroyed the town of Lytton, to major and catastrophic flooding, to the heat dome in 2021 that caused hundreds of deaths. Major lawsuits against fossil fuel companies have been undertaken globally, including Colorado taking Suncor and ExxonMobil to court, and a successful case against Shell in the Netherlands. These efforts are part of a broader campaign being called, quote, Sue Big Oil, end quote. While funding has been set aside, the case has not yet been filed, and support could be rescinded if the election in October leads to a shift in council and or council priorities. But if it goes through, a successful case could provide the much-needed funding to pay for the measures needed to protect citizens from climate change impacts and could ensure this funding comes from the companies that bear responsibility for the disinformation that has contributed to the decades of inadequate climate action. We'll keep you in the loop for any further developments on this story. Thanks for listening. Thank you.
our next headline is about a concerning trend on social media that involves breeding frogs, lots of them. Here's Tiana Barber Cross with that headline. Hello listener, this is Tiana. A recent trend on social media has caused major concern about ecosystem devastation. Earlier this year, a user on social media platform TikTok, which allows users to create and share short videos, has posted a terrifying stunt. The user, who we won't name both because they are a teenager and because their antics are likely motivated by popularity seeking, has collected frog eggs from a shallow pond near their home. Documented through their videos, the eggs have now hatched, resulting in approximately 1.4 million tadpoles currently living in a backyard pool, which have quickly spread across the neighborhood. This collection has created a breeding ground for diseases. The influx of a very high number of frogs to a native environment can completely devastate ecosystems, causing high predation of bugs that provide pollination and form the basis of many ecosystems. The frog-focused TikTok user claims his goal is to create the largest frog army in history, suggesting the goal of being an ecological menace slash terrible human is a secondary motivation. This isn't the first ecological crisis to make waves on the platform. Last year, seemingly also chasing fame, a user bought 100 million ladybugs and released them in Central Park in New York City. Apparently, the user was served a letter of intention to sue with a settlement value of over $300,000. The problem with these TikTok antics are also the virility of trends. Several comments egg these ecological menaces on, leading to promises of more drastic animal stunts and may result in other users copying their trends and affecting their local ecosystem. Both the frog and ladybug releasing users have millions of views, a result of the platform pushing these videos and expanding their reach. These trends and their popularity is certainly no laughing matter. The viral sensations could result in damaged ecosystems and destroyed populations. Social media might not be the best place for posted ecological practices. If you want to protect the frogs, keep them wild, and write for conservation measures to protect their habitat. This has been Tiana. Thanks for listening. Thanks, Tiana. Now, I have a headline about another animal that ended up in a place it wasn't supposed to be. A peacock that somehow got loose in Jasper National Park. In early July, people living in the town of Jasper, Alberta, saw an animal that, even for a town that sees lots of mountain wildlife, was a surprise. A peacock, or a domestic peafowl. 
After the initial sighting of the peacock, the bird was on the loose in the town for days. According to Parks Canada, after consulting with experts outside of parks, they tried to capture and remove the peacock for six days before the decision was made to euthanize the animal. Parks Canada stated that euthanizing an animal in order to remove it from a national park is, quote, always a last resort, end quote. The release of foreign species and domestic animals into national parks is illegal and also poses consequences for the ecological integrity of the area. In the case of this rogue peacock, there was a concern that it could introduce avian disease and parasites to other wildlife in the park, and this threat was deemed too great to allow the bird to remain in the area. Avian diseases can be very serious for bird populations. For example, you may have heard of the avian flu outbreak that hit numerous countries, including Canada, earlier this year. This virus, often called bird flu, can affect several species of food-producing birds, like chickens, turkeys, quails, and other types of fowl, and also wild birds. Avian influenza viruses are separated into two different classes, low pathogenic avian influenza and highly pathogenic avian influenza. Highly pathogenic viruses can cause severe illness and death in birds, and unfortunately, this is the type of bird flu that Canada has been dealing with in 2022. According to the Canadian Food Inspection Agency, as of July 27th, so just a few days ago, there are currently 17 premises in the province affected by the highly pathogenic avian influenza, with 14 premises having already been affected this year. It is estimated over 900,000 domesticated and commercial birds have been impacted in Alberta, with an estimated over 2 million birds being affected in all of Canada. While the potential for disease spread is one of the reasons that foreign and invasive species are not welcome guests in Canada's national parks, another reason is the disruption that they can cause to ecosystems and food chains. In Riding Mountain National Park, located in Manitoba, the smallmouth bass is an invasive species that acts as a top predator fish, meaning that they eat a lot of the other types of fish found in lakes, which results in population loss and overall damage to the water body. Invasive species like smallmouth bass also compete with existing species for resources. One of the new tactics that Parks Canada is trying in order to help control smallmouth bass populations in the area is spearfishing. A course on spearfishing is being taken by Parks Canada staff as well as the Coalition of First Nations that have fishing rights for Clear Lake, which is one of the larger lakes in Riding Mountain National Park. This spearfishing course is being run as part of research being done on the method for controlling smallmouth bass populations. This research is wrapping up now in August, and it may continue into the future if it is successful. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Terra Informa, 
a production of CGSR 88.5 FM. This week, we are rounding up some of the environmental news headlines that you may have missed over the past month. So far, we've covered Vancouver City's Council's new climate crisis litigation fund, a TikTok trend that involves breeding a concerning amount of frogs, and a peacock on the loose in Jasper National Park that unfortunately had to be euthanized. Our next few headlines are all about dun 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 sharks. It also just happens that Shark Week, hosted by the Discovery Channel, just happened last week. Shark Week, a week of programming dedicated to, you guessed it, sharks, has been put on by Discovery Channel annually since 1988. It was originally focused on conservation efforts and correcting misconceptions made about sharks, but it has grown in popularity and it has become a hit on the channel ever since. The week of programming has a host each year, but this year they have changed that role to Master of Ceremonies. And the first person to wear this title is none other than Dwayne The Rock Johnson. Now I'm kind of wishing I watched it. Now, here is our first shark-related headline, which involves orcas off the coast of South Africa that are hunting great white sharks. A study published at the end of June in the African Journal of Marine Science has a title that reads as such, Fear at the Top, Killer Whale Predation Drives White Shark Absence at South Africa's Largest Aggregation Site. This study references the activities of a pair of orcas that have been tormenting great white sharks off the coast of South Africa near the town of Gansby since 2017. Researchers from a shark tour company and the Dyer Island Conservation Trust have noticed that since 2017, 14 great white sharks with tracking devices have been tracked leaving the area, and sightings of great white sharks in the area have decreased. Eight great white sharks have washed ashore in South Africa since between 2017 and 2020. Seven of them had their livers removed, and some of them also had their hearts ripped out. According to the study, the wounds are distinctively made by the same pair of orcas, which are also known as killer whales. The pair was identified and surveyed by researchers through observations made from boats using photographs of their dorsal fins and saddle patches for identification. Both whales have collapsed dorsal fins, which make them easy to identify. The pair of orcas are known as port and starboard because of the direction the dorsal fins were collapsed in. According to Allison Towner, a senior biologist with the Dyer Island Conservation Trust, these sharks could be engaging in a, quote, large-scale avoidance strategy, end quote, noting that this kind of research is important for learning how large marine predators respond to risk, which can therefore help us understand the dynamics of coexistence between predator communities. According to the study, 
the absence of great white sharks in the Gansby area has resulted in a corresponding increase in bronze sharks. The researchers also note that other potential explanations for the decline in great white shark observations at Gansby could be the fishing of great white sharks or indirect effects of declines in prey caused by fishery activity. However, they add that while there are additional factors that could contribute to an overall decline in the numbers of great white sharks in the area, they are, quote, unlikely to explain the sudden localized decline in observations at Gansby, end quote. The study concludes by stating that predator-prey interactions between great white sharks, orcas, and other coastal sharks are increasing in South African waters, and that this is expected to have pronounced impacts on the coastal ecosystem. More recently, on July 27th, drone footage from earlier in the year was shared that showed three orcas killing a great white shark. According to the study, while orcas have been previously documented killing great white sharks in California, to the best of the researchers' knowledge, this is the first time that it has been documented in South Africa. Back in February, a pod of orcas were observed hunting and killing adult blue whales for the first time. In classic hunter fashion, the observations were pretty gnarly, including orcas swimming inside the mouths of blue whales to eat their tongues. Yikes. I guess shark got your tongue is a more of an appropriate phrase when you're talking about the largest animal on the planet. For our final headline, Tiana Barber Cross is back with a headline about recent shark attacks near Long Island, New York, and some of the potential reasoning behind them. Shark attacks are a popular fear of many beach visitors, particularly those of New York's Long Island, where a series of shark attacks in recent weeks is making headlines. Five shark attacks in two weeks have left many fearing the waters and the wildlife they hold. But Florida Program for Shark Research Program Director Gavin Naylor assures the public that the sharks are not targeting humans. Instead, a combination of a sand tiger shark nursery found just off the coast of southern Long Island and an increasing number of bait fish being found close to shore this year has led to cases of mistaken identities as these sharks hunt for fish and come across humans in the process. The gray and reddish brown spotted sand tiger sharks can appear quite fearsome with sharp pointy heads and teeth and a body length of up to 3.2 meters. However, the species have never caused any confirmed human fatalities. 
Like many coastal sharks, sand tiger sharks develop nursery areas for their young. In these areas, the young sharks are born and continue to reside there until maturity. The one off Long Island was discovered in 2016 by scientists with the Wildlife Conservation Society's New York Aquarium. Naylor posits that these recent encounters didn't result in life-threatening injuries because the sharks perpetrating them are likely young and from this nursery. While adult sharks are larger and more likely to cause greater harm if an attack occurs, that attack is less likely to occur in the first place as an adult shark is more mature and less likely to mistake humans for fish. However, if you are still afraid of wading into the waters, there are some things you can do to limit the risk of drawing their attention, and if that fails, to defend yourself. It's a good idea to not swim between dusk and dawn, to not swim alone, and to avoid shiny or flashy jewelry, which can appear like the scales of a fish, and don't swim if you have an open wound. If all of these precautions fail, and you still manage to attract some unwanted attention, make sure you keep your eye on the shark, remain calm, and start to swim with purposeful movements back to shore. If they do try to bite you, make sure you defend yourself and punch or kick it in the nose or gills. However, sharks do not target people, as Naylor claims, and the odds of getting attacked by a shark are little less than 1 in 4 million, according to the International Shark Attack File. So get out to the beach, get into the water, and make sure that you leave your jewelry in your bag. Thanks, Tiana. That is all the time we have for this week. I've been your host, Hannah Cunningham. Thanks for listening. Terra Informa is a production of CJSR 88.5 FM, and all of our content is created by a team of volunteers. Thank you so much to everyone who contributed a story this week. If you like what you heard, you can check out our website, terrainforma.ca, for past episodes. If you want to message us or see what else we're up to, you can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at Terra Informa. Catch you next week right here on Terra Informa.